Now, over the last several years, we've all been warned about and bombarded by conspiracy theories. You know them all. They typically revolve around uh, politicians. I see some eyes. There may be, uh, just heads up, maybe con- some conspiracy theorists among us this morning. But they're, uh, they're, they, these theories usually revolve around <laughs> politicians and politics, the untrustworthiness of media and government and everybody, you know. And these conspiracy theories have a hint of truth to them. You know, they, they ring true to us. But some of them are pretty far-fetched. And this, re- this week I read a new one that I had never heard of before. And uh, a lady named Caitlin Tiffany wrote about it in The Atlantic on Tuesday. It's called The Dead Internet Theory. And the article says, this is the headline, Maybe you missed it, but the internet died five years ago. Like, what is that about? So I had to read it. It's pretty interesting. Apparently, according to the theory, uh, sometime in 2016 or 2017, the great thing we know uh, as the internet ceased to be. Instead, all that's left is something that's controlled by artificial intelligence and bots. And with the help of influencers on social media, everything we read is being generated by computers and fed to us so that we buy what people want us to buy. Now, maybe that sounds reasonable to you. You know, you've had the experience of opening Facebook on your phone and getting an ad that's for something that you were just talking about with your friends. I, there's, man, I think maybe they're onto something with this dead internet theory. But in any case, whether it's a dead internet theory or one of the other ones that we read about, you know, these theories offer to us an all-encompassing explanation for the world. They, they take all these disparate phenomena and they pull them all together and they say, this is why things are the way they are. Some of them seem reasonable. Others of them, though, like the dead internet theory, seem a little bit beyond belief. And, and I wonder, would you believe me if I told you that the social upheaval we're living through right now, the economic uncertainty the breakdown of civilization, the the brokenness on display in our own city and and the families of people we love. What if I told you that all that was the result of a worldwide rebellion? Would you be likely to believe me? What what if I told you that not only, this is is Neo's red pill from the Matrix, okay? I'm about to red pill y'all, all right? What if I told you that there is a worldwide rebellion going on? But there's a different way of life possible. That despite the circumstances around you, you can have peace, unshakable hope, and joy despite your circumstances. You're highly attuned people, unsusceptible to the influence of conspiracy theories. And so immediately, your antennas perk up and you say, this is too good to be true. A way of life different than the brokenness on display around the world around us. But yeah, it's exactly what is on offer. It's what the author and and philosopher Dallas Willard was professor at University of Southern California. He called it the divine conspiracy. God's invitation to join him in what he's doing in the world. We're going to see the divine conspiracy on full display this morning. Because our our passage, Jesus, we, we finally get to see Jesus for ourselves. And the first thing he does is open his mouth with an invitation, a promise even, that God's kingdom reality is available to everyone, anyone 
who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus. And, and that's his invitation to you. This morning, Jesus Christ, by way of his messenger, me, is inviting you to enter into God's kingdom reality right now. And that's what we read about in the passage this morning. That, you know, in the first 13 verses of the gospel, what we've looked at the past two weeks, we get Mark's prologue. He's setting the stage for understanding Jesus by pointing us to Old Testament passages and the events that happened early in Jesus' life. But finally, in verse 14 and 15, we do see Jesus for ourselves. And, and not only do we see him, but we hear him. And I almost, I wanted to title this sermon so badly, Jesus is a Preacher. Because before Jesus ever opened a blind person's eyes or unstopped a deaf person's ear or told a lame person to get up and walk, before he cast out any demons, before he'd done anything else, he opened his mouth and preached. Jesus is a preacher, whether the sermon's called that or not. And the message he preached is so powerful. Mark talks about Jesus, the preacher, throughout his gospel. And even Jesus tells his own disciples this. Uh, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks in Mark 1.38. He says, Let us go to the other towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. Jesus is a preacher, and everywhere he goes, he preaches. Mark's going to tell us this over and over and over. But a strange thing happens in Mark's gospel. Whereas Matthew is really focused on all of Jesus' teaching, you, you may notice Mark uses this phrase immediately all the time. Mark is a man of action, and he's focused on the life of Jesus. And so he never breaks down and gives us the content of Jesus' sermons. Instead, we get the 15 words of Mark 1, 14, and 15. Jesus says, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Re repent and believe in the gospel. That is the summary of Jesus' sermon. And I'm trying to make my sermon, my sermon shorter. I hope you've noticed that. It takes me a lot of hard work, I'm telling you. But I'm never going to be able to preach a 15-word sermon. But that's exactly what Jesus does in our passage. He preaches a 15-word sermon that provides to us all that we need to understand about his person and his work. And so today, I just wanted to dig deep into Jesus the preacher, Jesus the king, and see what kind of sermons he preached. And the first thing you see in this sermon is that Jesus came in God's perfect timing. Jesus came in God's perfect timing. I mean, even Mark tells us this. He says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching. After John was arrested. Now, one scholar said that it was almost like Jesus was restrained by God until John was taken off the scene. And you wonder what set of events must have happened in Jesus' life. You know, we're not privy to them. But what triggered in him the sudden awareness that he needed to go preaching in Galilee? Mark tells us it was the fact that John had been arrested. And you wonder why would the Father in heaven prevent Jesus from beginning his ministry until he was 30 years old and John had been arrested? Why then? Why there? Well, according to Jesus, it was because God had a perfect plan that was fulfilled in his perfect timing. You know, Mark's already started to prep us for hearing this sermon. He begins by saying, uh, by quoting from the prophet Isaiah and from the prophet Malachi. He's showing us how Jesus is the Messiah that had been promised by the prophets. So we're, we're sort of alerted to the fact that there's a backstory to Jesus' life that you need to know 
if you're going to fully understand what he's all about. And of course, this factors into the way the apostles understood Jesus. It's like everywhere they go in the book of Acts, they're preaching sermons based on Old Testament passages. One of their favorites was Psalm 110, another was Psalm 2, Psalm 24. They're drawing on the things in the Old Testament and the fulfillment they see in Jesus. But there's a certain train of thought that says that this looking back on the Old Testament is sort of like underhanded, that maybe the apostles are twisting the scriptures to make Jesus into something that he wasn't really. But what you see in Jesus' sermon is that his own awareness about his ministry, about who he was, was rooted in the fact that he had come at the perfect time to fulfill God's plan. It comes out of his own mouth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, in just this little phrase, the time is fulfilled, we get all we need to understand how Jesus saw himself. He saw himself as wrapping up and fulfilling all that God had promised to his people in the past. We see this in the book of Luke, where Luke starts to describe Jesus' ministry. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes with his disciples into the synagogue in Capernaum. And the typical pattern in the synagogue is that a man would be asked to read from one of the prophets. And if he was studious and well-versed, he'd be asked to expound upon it, to preach a little mini-sermon. And so Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus opens the scroll. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And he wraps it up. And he hands it back to the guy. And he sits down in the chair to preach his sermon. And he says, Luke 4, 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus. Totally aware that he's significant that he had come in God's perfect timing to fulfill God's promises. The Jewish religious leaders are trying to figure Jesus out in John chapter 5. They're trying to understand him in light of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And Jesus told them, he said, You guys are searching the scriptures because you think in them you'll find the secrets to eternal life. But these scriptures testify about me. This is Jesus' understanding. He came to fulfill what God had promised in God's perfect time. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is Jesus' own frame of reference for his life. The time is fulfilled. Here I am to do what God has always promised to do. You know, maybe you've had this experience where something happened in your life at just the right time. There's a certain weightiness that comes along with that realization. I have a, a friend back in the woodlands, a, a sweet lady, poured into me, loved me, encouraged me. She called those moments God winks. When it's like God peels back the heavens and looks down on you and says, I got you. I'm right here. I haven't abandoned you. There's a weightiness to something happening at the right time. You get a gift that you needed at the right time. Nobody knew that you were going through what you were going through, but you open the mailbox, and there's a gift, a, a, a check that's going to meet the needs that you have. You, you know what it's like to have a friend speak to you, encouragement that comes to you at just the right time. You needed that. I think about the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza thinks about the comeback when he's down the road and wants to turn around and, and go lay it on his boss. If you don't lay the comeback down at the right time, it loses its meaning. 
Jesus is significant, okay? He would be significant on his own. If Jesus had showed up doing the things he, had, he did and, and, and acting the way he acted, fulfilling the miracles the way he did, it would have been significant. But when he says the time is fulfilled, there's a certain weightiness to his life. It's almost like sit up on the edge of your seat because the thing that you've been waiting for and hoping for and banking all your confidence in is finally here. The time is fulfilled. And that's because, secondly, his sermon's not just focused on the timing. It's focused on the fact that Jesus announced God's coming kingdom. God's people weren't on the edge of their seat waiting for nothing. There was something that they were longing for. They were longing for the kingdom of God. And there's no doubt that as a, a person in a church, you have a certain frame of reference for that phrase, kingdom of God. Maybe for you, it, it conjures images of streets of gold and angel choirs and worship services and uh, all kinds of things. I know it certainly does for me. And when Jesus' first hearers out of his mouth, they would have certain images in their mind as well. Um, the Old Testament talks about the kingdom of God over and over, though it doesn't always do that in just those terms. But God's kingship is right in the forefront of God's people's conception of him. And the Old Testament uses kingdom in two ways. Of course, the kingdom of God is a certain realm. It's a kingdom. It's a place with geographical boundaries. Uh, it's the place where God rules as king. But in another sense, the kingdom of God is his authority that he exercises as king. His kingship or his reign uh, Dallas Willard, again, calls it the range of God's effective will, where what God wants to be done is done. That's God's kingdom. And the scriptures are clear, as we saw this morning in small groups, that as our creator, God has a certain authority that he exercises over the things he's made. Right? Um, unlike the gods of Egypt and the other nations of the ancient Near East, God was not confined to one specific location, but he went everywhere. He's over all things. Psalm 10 praises him as king forever and ever, and Psalm 47 exalts him as king over all the earth. So from the Old Testament perspective, the kingdom of God is not just the place where God has his throne, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the promised land. The kingdom of God is his rule and his reign that he ought to exert over all things because he created our world. It's like we know instinctively, I hope you know this instinctively, deep within your soul, that because God created our world, the world ought to operate according to his will. It's like one author put it this way, and I want to see, do you agree or disagree? Thumbs up or thumbs down? The universe functions properly, and life within the universe is happy and harmonious only when God is in absolute control. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up? Okay, I agree with you. The universe operates properly, and life within it is happy and harmonious only when God exercises absolute control. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And that's what we're living in. We're living in a world that's out of order. It's not living according to its king's desires. And that's because the first human beings whom God placed in a perfectly prepared little temple tabernacle rebelled against his authority. Instead of recognizing him as king, 
who had the authority and right to dictate terms to them, they said, maybe we'll be the king. Maybe we'll be the queen. Maybe we'll be like God, and we'll choose to go our own way. And the chaos and disorder that we experience is all a result of that. It's rebellion against the creator king who made us. And so the story of the Bible is, in one sense, God's plan to restore the things he's made back to his original intention, to bring all things under his control and under his feet again, where the range of his effective will is across the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the Old Testament idea of the kingdom of God. And occasionally, you know this, occasionally there are glimpses where it breaks through, where maybe this isn't all just happening behind the scenes. Maybe this actually has teeth, and and the rubber's going to meet the road, and we're going to get to see it in the real world. Of course, the places where that happens is in God's covenant with his people, Israel. And they start to experience some blessing in the promised land because they're living under God's law. His will is taking root in their hearts and in their nation. And they experience his blessing and provision. Later, he raises up a king named David, a man after his own heart. And David has a son named Solomon. And, And as long as they're living under God's will, under his law, living faithfully and obediently, he enlarges their borders. He extends the range of his effective will. So that wherever the king of Israel is ruling and reigning, their God is too. But eventually, even that little tiny picture breaks down. And those people rebel against him. You've read the stories of the wicked kings who didn't walk in the way of their father David, but they rebelled against the authority of God. And eventually, God's patience for those people runs out. And he sends them away from the promised land and sends them into exile where they have a, a ruthless king who reigns over them. But all along, God's people are hoping, believing, that maybe someday God will return to his people, reestablish his kingdom, and reign over them again. And so they start to think, well, what could that look like? What what would it look like if God showed up and established his throne on Mount Zion and reigned over us as his people? And they saw some changes, changes that I wish we could see in our world. They, They anticipated social transformation where corruption and injustice were replaced with righteousness and justice. Some social change. If God was king, this wouldn't be happening. They hope for changes in the natural world. The prophets talk about the lion laying down with the, the, the lamb. You know, the, the disorder, the droughts, the natural disasters, all that would be done away with. There'd be no more death, no more tears. Be a perfect world again. Of course, they prayed for transformed political situation where they were no longer in exile. They were back in their promised land. When the Romans were kicked out of Jerusalem and they had their own king to reign over them. But their most central hope was a spiritual transformation where all people would properly serve, obey, and worship God. The prophets talk about the knowledge of God, knowledge of the glory of God covering the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. When all the nations streamed in from the far ends of the earth to Mount Zion to worship God on his holy hill, to bow down before the Messiah and King. When Jesus showed up, okay, this is crazy. When Jesus showed up and said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what they're thinking in the back of their mind. Now, God's showing up. He's going to transform our broken social order. He's going to fix what's broken in the natural world. He's going to kick the Romans out and establish his kingdom on Mount Zion. He's going to transform us so that we don't hear the law coming 
outside of us, but he gives us a new heart, writes his law on it, so that what we want more than anything is to live in a way that pleases him. That's what they heard him saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has showed up to do what you've been wanting him to do. And you can imagine how overwhelmed they would have been. You see it break out across the Gospels. Little kids dancing in the streets, laying down palm leaves, shouting. They say stuff like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, we, we get to see our kids every week, you know, moving around in worship. It's hard to keep still. Can you imagine what they would do if the Lord Jesus on a donkey was riding through, and they thought he was about to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, set up a throne in the temple, and start to reign over a worldwide kingdom? Oh, it would have been so raucous. No wonder the religious leaders tried to get those people to shut up. He said, tell them to be quiet. Don't they know what they're going to do? The Romans are going to get wind of this. They're going to think we're stirring up some kind of political rebellion, and we know that's not what we're after. So get them to be quiet. They're expecting political transformation. I mean, even after Jesus is crucified, his disciples leave dejected from Jerusalem. And in Luke 24, they're walking along the road, and Jesus, the resurrected Christ, they don't know he's resurrected, but this man who's veiled before them comes and starts to walk alongside them, and he asks them, what's going on with you guys? Why are you so bummed out? And they said, don't you know what happened in Jerusalem? You've got to be the only person who was there who is totally ignorant of the facts. And so they start to tell him about Jesus and about the life he lived and about all the good things he did. And they said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. The kingdom of God's at hand, but wait a second. There's the supposed Messiah up on a cross, breathing his last. Turns out the kingdom of God wasn't at hand. You know, I, I've thought about it all week long, um, we are Americans, and so we have a national history that teaches us to look skeptically on kings. We don't normally think of kings as a good thing. Our last experience with them worked out pretty badly, and we're really skeptical of politicians who want the kind of control that kings usually possess. You know, you think of the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Off with her head! Now, I don't want a politician who's got that kind of authority. Amen? Okay. I'm glad we agree on it. But for the people of Israel, their whole life was consumed with thoughts and prayers that the king would arrive and establish his kingdom. I mean, we know the end of the story. Mark's only giving us the beginning. But you can, surely you can commiserate with their sadness when their crucified king is laid to rest in a tomb. I mean, he'd given them plenty of reasons to believe that this is more than some kind of conspiracy, more than something that's too good to be true, far-fetched. I mean, yeah, he said the kingdom of God was at hand, and then he backed it up with his life. Everywhere he went and everything he did was a public demonstration of God extending the range of his effective will. When he spoke, he spoke with authority like a king should. He didn't have to quote scholars and tell you footnotes. He just said it, and it was like when God said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus looked at demons in people and said, come out of him, and the demon did. He saw people who had been blind from birth, and he said, open up your eyes. 
and they opened up their eyes. The demons trembled before him. They ran. Everywhere Jesus went, he was backing up his sermon with the life he lived. He even is with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up, and the winds are howling, and the waves are crashing over the boat, and he says, peace be still. And they say, who even is this that the winds and waves obey him? He's exerting his authority over creation. And then the paralytic man, we're going to see this in a few weeks, I think, gets lowered down from a roof. And Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven you. Of course, the religious people are too good at theology to miss the implications that Jesus is taking for himself the authority that only God possesses. And he says, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man does. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, everything Jesus did, he was backing up his promise that the kingdom of God was at hand. And then, there he is on the cross, dead. Oh man, he had been totally dejected. We thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What they didn't realize, and what we get to see, is that God had bigger plans for them than they did. That God wasn't simply interested in establishing an earthly kingdom and letting everything work itself out. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus came to live a sinless life, perfectly submitting himself to the Father's authority, just like we should have done. And then at the end of his life, he died a sacrificial death for rebels like me and you. And then, only then, after three days in a borrowed tomb, did God raise him up and prove that he is who he says he is and show him to be not only Lord over creation and Lord over blindness and the one who has the authority to cast out demons and to calm seas, but he showed that nothing can stand against him, that even death, hell, and the grave have been conquered and are under his feet. He's the Lord of all. Because of that, God raises him up to heaven, puts him on the throne, not on earth. How silly would that be? He places him on the throne that really matters, where Jesus sits now at the Father's right hand as Lord of all creation. That's what God was doing. So Jesus shows up preaching the sermon, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and the people are like, great. And he's like, just wait until you hear how good it gets. Because he took their little measly expectations and multiplied it by a factor of 10. He said, I have so much more in store for you. Behind the scenes, this divine conspiracy was taking root so that what we prayed this morning, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, would be true. That bit by bit, moment by moment, Jesus would extend the rule of his effective will and all things would come under his control. So that's the second thing Jesus preached, all right? Then the third thing is that Jesus invited all people to enter into that kingdom now. The kingdom of God that had always been promised and had always been a future thing. Someday, somewhere, maybe God's going to show up. He's going to send his Messiah and he's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Jesus was saying, no, that's not a future thing anymore. It's here. And because it was here, it required a certain response from the people. They couldn't go on living in rebellion against the true and rightful king. You can't have two kings. Jesus talks about this when it comes to God and money. You can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. And so Jesus says that the chance to get in on this kingdom is right here in front of you, but it requires a conscious decision. 
Are you going to go on living under your own authority? Are you going to submit to mine? You know, us preachers, and I'm the worst about this, we get bogged down in the teaching side of things. We want to open up every little facet of the scripture so that you understand more and know more. And we give you something to chew on at lunch when you're sitting with your family. But I don't envision that many people left Jesus' sermons and went and sat down to fried chicken and biscuits and looked at each other and said, hey, what did you think about Jesus' sermon this morning? Now, I don't think they're like discussing it in that way. Because what Jesus offers to people is not a theological truth to meditate on. It's not five lessons to being the best version of yourself that you can be. Instead, it's like a stark choice. On the one hand, you have the path that leads to life. On the other hand, you have a path that leads to destruction. Which will you choose? He says you can choose to enter into the path of life, but it requires something. It requires, first of all, repentance. It requires repentance. We talked about this two weeks ago. We saw John the Baptist came in the wilderness, and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you are here that week, you remember we talked about what it means to repent. Of course, the word means to change your mind. That's just the straight etymology of the word, to change your mind. But there's more to it, and if you've ever repented, you know. There's more to it than just changing the way you think. But changing the way you think always leads to changed behavior. And when Jesus and John called people to repentance, they weren't calling people to recognize something new about themselves. They were calling them to make a radical break with the way they had been living to live a different way. It was going to require a conscious change. See, God's people had rejected his authority time and time and time again, just like us. They had rejected his authority time and time again. They'd rejected him in the garden. They'd rejected him in the law. They'd rejected him in the prophets, and he'd sent them into exile, and each one of them every day were rejecting them by making decisions where they exalted themselves as the one who got to dictate terms of their life. But Jesus says, if you want to enter into God's kingdom, that can't be the way you operate anymore. You're under God's judgment, and the only way to enter in is by way of repentance, to humbly admit your own sin and to turn your back on it. Instead, trust in God's way. There's no other option. You have to repent of your sins. But at the same time, he called people to believe. And I think these are two sides of one coin. The one, the one coin, we sometimes call it in the church, conversion. But it's a decision that happens in a person's life where they go from living for themselves, to the way I say it, is to living for Jesus. And it means turning your back on your old way and taking hold of God. And what Jesus wanted people to take hold of, what he wanted them to believe, was the gospel, the good news, the good news of God's kingship, of God's arrival, that his kingdom was coming, that he was reestablishing his reign, that he was extending the range of his effective will over the face of the earth, and he was going to begin right here in the hearts of people who repented of their sins and trusted him. This belief's more than agreeing with facts. Like, okay, yes, I see how Jesus fulfills these Old Testament prophecies, and therefore, it must be true, thumbs up, he is who he says he is. That's belief in one sense. But I think what Jesus is really after is heartfelt trust. It's like the person who's drowning out at sea. They're hanging on to a piece of wood, and here comes a rescue boat right alongside them. They toss them a lifeline. They say, let go, 
that piece of wood and take hold of the rope. The person totally frightened by the water around them. They've been hanging on for dear life. They're afraid if they let go, they'll never make it into the boat. And so they never do. They just keep on hanging on to the wood. That's repentance and faith. It means letting go of what you've been hanging on to and taking hold of what God has cast out to you. Jesus said, take hold of me as the king. Believe that I am the one who I say I am. Believe I'm the one who came to establish my kingdom. Believe I'm the one who has authority over all those things that cause you so much grief and pain. Believe in me. Believe the good news. The sermon Jesus preached didn't land on some theological truth that people could contemplate, meditate on. It landed on decision. Which will you decide? And everywhere he went, he offered people that choice. Nobody could just observe Jesus. They want to. They climb up in trees to get a better look. And then he points them out and he says, come down in that tree. Everywhere he goes, people want to just dip their toes in the water, figure out, is, could it be who he really says he is? And Jesus challenges people with choice. Would they hear his words? Would they see his life and recognize him as their king? Would they willingly lay down their sin, their life, to follow him with all they've got? That's a choice. And it's a choice that sits before each of us every day. What will it be? See, after Jesus' resurrection, he gave his disciples a task. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's established the range of his effective will over all created things. All authority in heaven and on earth. And he sent his people in that authority to make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe everything he commanded them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We think about this, we call this the Great Commission. We think about this as the mission of the church. Here we are on earth, set to tell people about Jesus. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had told his disciples this was going to be their task. He'd actually sent them out while he was still alive on earth, and gave them the task of going and preaching the good news, and casting out demons, and healing the sick. So they can get their feet wet and figure it out. He told them in Matthew 24, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We think about Jesus' first sermon, 15 words. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We see it demonstrated in his life, him taking authority and exercising it over all created things. We see him now, seated in heaven at the Father's right hand. But it's not like the kingdom is just some conspiracy theory happening behind the scenes. You can believe it if you want. You look at the world, there's not a whole lot of evidence for it, but it's there, trust me. Or we can see the reality of God's kingdom as the all-encompassing reality of our lives. That God's kingdom, not place, but the range of his effective will has already taken root. He's already extending his rule over the face of the earth, and he's doing it as people like us talk about him, share him with others, challenge people with the same choice to repent and believe the gospel. The God's kingdom reality is available right now to anyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And so the apostles take this gospel of the kingdom across the face of the earth. Everywhere they go, from India to Africa to Europe, they're extending the knowledge of God. The tribes who are living in villages 
to people who don't know how to read and write. They're translating the gospel. They're giving people the ability to read because they believed that King Jesus was ruling and reigning now and everybody had to know about it. Because of that, I believe with all my heart. Like, all of my heart. I want to believe it with all my heart. That even now, it's possible for me and you to look at what's going on in the world and to call it for what it is. The last gasp of Satan's dying empire. That even now, in the midst of brokenness and death, grief, heartache, King Jesus is establishing a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom built on righteousness, truth, and blessedness. An invitation extends to all people to enter into that kingdom and to live with Him forever, and that kingdom life begins now. It's possible to have love, joy, and peace because King Jesus is ruling and reigning. I'm looking forward to heaven. You? Yeah, streets of gold, angel choirs. It's going to be crazy. I'm looking forward to it. But I want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see broken families come to know what it means to live under the authority of King Jesus. To where dads and moms get down on their knees every night and pray over their kids so that he would have the range of his effective will extend over their kids' lives so they do what Jesus wants, not what they want. I want to see businesses transformed. Instead of making the most money, I want to see people who own businesses say, how can I do the most good in the world with what God's given me? That's what it looks like for the kingdom to take root in our hearts. And this morning, his invitation extends to you. Kingdom of God's at hand. It's right here before you. The kingdom reality that Jesus came, lived, died, and was raised to bring is right here. Will you have it? Will you live under his rule and reign? Will you allow the king's will to be done in your life? I think it's probable, maybe in a crowd this size, there are people who have never submitted to the authority of King Jesus. They've never repented of their sins. And by repent, remember, it means to turn your back on a life of sinfulness, to let go of everything that you once held dear and cling only to Jesus. That's what we're talking about. It's probable. There are people who've never made a conscious decision to leave their life behind and follow Jesus with all they've got. This morning, if that's you, I'm not talking about people who are going to rededicate their lives. I'm not talking about people who are going to recommit, come back to what they once knew as a kid. I'm talking about legit. You have never drawn a line in the sand and crossed over to Jesus' way. You should do that today. You should. Jesus came to people, said the time's fulfilled, and, and he still does that. He says, today's the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. You're not promised tomorrow. You know that as well as I do, having lived through the world like we have the past two years. None of us is guaranteed another minute. If you've never crossed a line, given your life to Jesus, repented of your sins, and taken hold of him by faith, do it today. I stand out here in the hallway awkwardly. You come by and talk with me on the way out. Today's the day. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. There's a card. Mark on there, I'm committing to live for Jesus. And hand me that card, and I'll call you this week and set up coffee. Please do that. Live under the authority of King Jesus, because I know it sounds to you like it's some kind of conspiracy. Like all these people have deluded themselves into thinking that Jesus is in control when it's quite clear that he's not. But I'm telling you, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent. Believe the gospel. Will you pray with me?